Welcome everyone. This is Better Than I Found It, a podcast taking a deep dive into Coach McGraw's coaching career. We'll hopefully bring on some uh, guests from the past, also his current insights and a little bit on Baylor golf, some updates on our program here. My name is Mikkel Bjerkendriesen. I'll serve as your host. I am the assistant men's golf coach working for Coach McGraw. Uh, played at Baylor back in the day and I brought this idea to coach because he obviously is very open about sharing from his experiences what he's learned throughout his coaching career and he's been great for a young coach like myself and so we wanted to spread the word a little bit and create another platform for coach McGraw to leave the profession better than they found it and we're taking a little bit deeper dive into that in the conversation today this very first episode, why the name, uh, why the, the book that he wrote a few years ago, better than I found it, of the same name, and kind of what his goals are in coaching currently. Uh, the first episode is focused on his career, how it has transformed, what uh, the places he's been, some of the coaches, uh, some of the players he's coached. And so just really to... Uh, set the stage for how he got to Baylor and how he became the coach that he is today. And so I think without uh, much further ado, we'd be served best to just uh, bring Coach on for this very first episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. Coach McGraw, welcome to your very own podcast. Well, thank you, Mikel. I appreciate that. Glad to be here. Um, so we've had this idea for a little bit. Um, can you tell me what kind of was compelling to you about uh, wanting to do this and starting a podcast? Well, uh, I'll give you credit for that. You kind of came up with the idea that you thought it would be good to sort of piggyback off of my book, Better Than I Found It, that I wrote three and a half years ago. And so I thought that'd probably be a good idea and maybe to actually improve on or uh, elaborate on some of the stories that I talked about in that book, but also bring some new information to the table, some new ideas, thoughts, coaching ideas. But I thought it was a really good idea to, to look into it and see if I couldn't expound upon the idea from the original book. Yeah. So... Uh, we chose to name it the same as your book, Better Than I Found It. Can you tell us uh, why the title of your original book? Well, the title didn't come until I was about 75% through with the book. I had been working on it from June 15th until about November 1st, and I was so tired. I, w- I didn't know. I-, I wasn't an author. It wasn't natural for me. And so anyway, I put the book down for about 20 days and the day after Thanksgiving, I decided to kind of finish the book, and I still didn't have a title for the book. And so I was struggling. I'd had the guys on the team think of ideas of names for the book. They, did, they hadn't seen the content, but they, they knew it was a book about coaching and about my career. But I, they still couldn't come up with anything that I liked. And I was at home with my wife one evening, and I was telling her about, man, I've tried everything I can to come up with a name for this book. And my wife, who's a little bit smarter than I am, and she uses her common sense a lot more than I do, she said, well, Mike, 
the first chapter is about your dad. Why don't you just come up with something he used to tell you or something that was important to you that you learned from him? And so I went through and just kind of came up with some ideas of all the things my dad had taught me. And the thing that struck me was the the comment he used to always make to me. He says, Michael, I don't care if you're in a meeting. I don't care if you're uh, coaching. I don't care if you're uh, doing a practice session for yourself or whatever. Wherever you are, just leave it better than you found it, better than it was when you got there. And that could be physically by picking up trash. It could be, you know, the way you leave the energy in the room is better than it was before you got there. Just anything about it, just always putting your stamp on something by making it better than it was before. And so I like that quote better than I found it. I'd heard it actually leaving something better than you found it. But I thought the best quote for the book or the best title would be better than I found it. That's what I'd like to do with the coaching profession. That's very cool. And so I think um, the idea with the podcast is pretty cool because it gives you the chance to reach more coaches, young players, uh, recruits, you know, all sorts of people that are interested in the game of golf. Um, and it lets you reach them in another medium than just your first book. So uh, we're excited to get it going. I kind of want to elaborate a little bit on your coaching story in this very first uh, podcast, if that's cool with you. That'd be great. Um, and so I think the most natural question, uh, just because I think your co- your coaching career has been really, really interesting, um, and you've been a lot of different places, a lot of different levels, how did it all start? Um, because I I suspect you didn't grow up wanting to necessarily be a coach, and that was your main goal in life. You're right about that. Like so many young players that I recruit, that you and I recruit, so many players from my era, the modern day, whatever, you kind of look at your heroes. And my two heroes were Jack Nicholson and Ben Hogan. Ben Hogan from a you know, a, a time before I was growing up and Jack Nicklaus right during the time I grew up, I thought I was going to be a professional golfer. I mean, it was so obvious to me. That's why I worked every day. That's why I went to the golf course early in the morning. That's why I t- stayed until late in the evening. I wanted to be a player and I was a good player, not a great player. And I played division two golf, so I wasn't a great player by any stretch. And it was one man. It wasn't my dad either. Because my dad, I think, probably was smart enough to figure out I wasn't going to be a professional golfer. But uh, a man named Art Proctor at Kicking Bird Golf Course in Edmond, Oklahoma, where I was going to college and where I was working, and I was the junior golf director at Kicking Bird. And one day, about six or seven months after I graduated, I played a little mini-tour golf already, but nothing spectacular. And Art was saying, Mike, you do a great job with the junior golf program. Maybe coaching is where you should be headed. And I didn't think about it at that time seriously and tried to play, you know, mini tour golf for a while longer. But he planted a seed that day where he, he kind of said, I think you'd be a really good coach. I think you communicate well with people. I think you have a heart to help people. And so I, I, I think what Art said that day back in late 82, early 1983, probably planted a seed that uh, that I should one day be a coach. And when my playing days were over shortly thereafter, it was obvious that that's where I thought I should be. Yeah. Maybe you needed to make a few more birdies, too. Oh, you think? Um, so you get into high school coaching in Oklahoma. You're the assistant at Memorial High. Is that right? In yes. Edmond? Yes, Edmond Memorial. Um, you become the head coach at Edmond North. And then comes the part of your coaching career that I kind of want to touch 
a little bit more heavily on um, in this episode is your time at Oklahoma State. Um, so you start as the assistant men's coach. You were the head women's coach. Head men's coach, you were literally every part of both programs, and you know it in and out. Um, can you maybe expand on some of the highlights from that time, what you enjoy the most at Oklahoma State? Um, yeah, let's do that first. Okay, well, I think the, before I get to Oklahoma State, that the two experiences I had coaching in Edmond were extremely valuable to me because, and I tell my players that, former players that today, it was like, you guys were helping train me to be a coach because I didn't know what I was doing. I was 25, 26, 27 when I was doing that initially, and I had no idea what coaching was about. I had passion. I was still a pretty decent player, and I had a love for helping people achieve what I couldn't achieve as a player. But I didn't know how to set up a team. I didn't know how to organize anything like that at all. I did it all, you know, on the fly, if you will. I didn't really know what I was doing. But I, I do know I had something that every coach needs, and that's enthusiasm and a love for what you're doing. Because I, I think if you don't have enthusiasm, you're not going to be good at anything you do. If you don't love what you do, it's going to be rare that you're going to be a true success in that field of endeavor if you don't really, really love it. And so... I was 25 or 6 or 7, just getting into coaching and coaching the high, helping coach the high school team at Edmond Memorial. And we had a great team, a lot of kids that went and played Division I golf at Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, and several other schools. But it, it was more than just the success we were having. It was what I was learning about myself. Just, I mean, I, I, you know, the value of just how you talk to a kid and how you look him straight in the eye and tell him the truth. You know, that was... That was hard because sometimes those moments are uncomfortable. So, and I don't think I ever really got past that non-confrontational stage while I was a high school coach. And we were so good, I didn't have to have that many confrontational moments anyway. But when I got to Oklahoma State, I would say, and there's a lot packed into that 16 years that I spent in Stillwater. But when I was at Oklahoma State, I think the greatest thing Mike Holder ever did for me was the value of confrontation, and the and confrontation was a negative word to me going before I met Mike Holder. And after I spent all those years with him, I understood that there is value in confrontation and there is value in being able to confront things head on that I didn't really completely understand before I got to Stillwater. So that's part of what I learned there. There was tons more, but that I think is the biggest thing I could take out of my 16 years at Oklahoma State was when you look at somebody in the eye and you tell them the truth as you know it, that's really, really important. And I, I know this, if, so, if I tell somebody the truth, he might, might be unhappy with me for a few days or a week or maybe longer. But, but if I lied to him, I, I've, I've probably lost him for good. So I think that was a great thing. Even though I, I always wanted to be truthful, I kind of probably as a young coach kind of sidestepped some of those issues. And I, I think Mike Holder ta- taught me the value of, of heading things straight on. Sure. And to take a step back, this probably needs no explanation to 99% of uh, the eventual listeners of of this podcast. But Mike Holder that you go to work for is definitely or probably the all-time most winningest coach in college golf. Um, Really laid the foundation of a dynasty at Oklahoma State in college golf. 
Um, I couldn't tell his records off the top of my head. Was it 12 national championships, eight national championships? Well, he won eight national championships. And in 32 years, I think he was first or second at the national championship 18 times. Yeah. So he had a pretty good run. Yeah. And so he's obviously a uh, very strong character, very charismatic. There's tons of stories, and we'll tap into a lot of the, the stories, both lessons you learn and, and some of the funny moments that happen um, in coaching and around Coach Holder eventually here. But So you go to work for the legend of the game at that, at that time. Uh, and so you touched a little bit on what you learned, learned from Coach Holder, but you're also surrounded by just incredible players, right? And so how was that step, uh, uh, so to speak, competitively from high school golf to working with the best team in, in college golf at the time? Well, my very best players at Edmond Memorial and Edmond North, uh, really I only had two players all those years go to Oklahoma State. So it's like all those state championships we were winning and all that success we were having, still those players were not good enough to populate a Power 5, Division 1 great team in general. And occasionally you run into stretches where you have teams or, you know, that have some kids that play Division 1 golf, but not that many. So the level was much higher. The quality of golf was much higher. But one of the things that I learned was coaching is coaching. And so if, if you can learn to help somebody maximize what they're doing, it doesn't matter if you're taking a, you know, a, an average high school player to becoming a good high school player or a really good college player becoming a tour player one day. You know, coaching is coaching. So I, I learned that. I, I think... Uh, one of the other values that my dad had already taught me was the value of hard work. And uh, I just, my dad grew up in the Depression. He didn't know anything else. That's all he knew. And, you know, he figured every day he worked hard, but just took him one day further away from poverty. And I, I, I have this memory of my dad, and he had this, uh, he never, never, never carried a wallet, but he had uh, a dollar bill wrapped around with a rubber band. And inside that was some more bills. I didn't know what numbers those were, but they were more bills. And inside that was a driver's license and maybe a few other cards, membership cards to the PGA of America, a library card. I don't know what was in there, but but he always had that. And I said, Dad, can I see that? And one day I asked him, he handed it to me and I counted it and there was $1,000. And I looked at him and I said, Dad, you're crazy. What are you doing with $1,000? And he said, son, all I know, when I was a kid, I was poor. And I, once I had some money, I always wanted to have money in my pocket. And so if I spent $200 at a business in town, I went straight to the bank, got $200 out of the bank and filled it up. I always carried $1,000 with me. And essentially what he was telling me was he understood poverty. He had been there. He didn't want that anymore. And so every, every day pushed poverty away from him was a good thing. And he always felt like, symbolically speaking, $1,000 in your pocket, you're a rich man. So uh, I learned that value of hard work uh, from my dad. And crazy enough, my, uh, Mike Holder was about 18 years younger than my dad, but he learned pretty much the same thing. His dad was a, a West Texas oilman, and you know they didn't have a lot of money, and they, uh, they worked hard. And Mike was probably the hardest working guy I've ever been around. He was just like my dad. He worked all the time. And so it was very natural to work for Mike because I'd grown up working for my dad. My dad was a club pro and, you know, I worked for him every day, picking up range balls, uh, 
washing carts, cleaning clubs, storing clubs, vacuuming the carpet, you know, filling the candy machine, the Coke machine. And the great thing about working for your dad when he was the club professional, it's either the great thing or the really challenging thing was the boss was at home when you got at home that night. <laughs> so you couldn't do a bad job at work because he was there at home. So I, I just think the value the the true value of working hard and what that could mean to you in life. I learned that from my dad and then Mike Holder just kind of accentuated that or, or augmented that and kept it moving forward. So. Yeah. Um, so hopefully throughout this, um, our goal is to get a bunch of guests on the podcast from the time you were there and also here at Baylor and before and after and, for it to serve as an extension of your book, so to speak. Um, and so we'll dive deeper into all the ins and outs of your time at Oklahoma State. Um, but I wanted to touch on, in this first podcast, the time that you were let go by Oklahoma State. And it's uh, documented in the book, and you're very open about it. But um, I just wanted to... Yeah, just get an auditory kind of version of it from from your end um, in this podcast. Um, just kind of take us through how how it happened and um, just kind of how it transformed you uh, as a coach. Looking back at it now, well, yeah, that was a, a very interesting time for me because uh, you know I've only been fired one time in my life, and it happened there at Oklahoma State. But if you back up to the time I was his assistant coach, when, when he hired me, he said, Mike, I want to help you get a, a coaching job at another university, you know, after you've worked here a year or two or three or whatever it takes. But don't ever get any wild ideas of being the golf coach at Oklahoma State. You're not going to be the golf coach. <laughs> and that was in our interview. And I was just so thrilled that he was going to hire me to be his assistant. I knew I could learn a lot from him. Uh, didn't even consider it. You know, he was the one that he preempted it, if you will. He was just don't think you're going to get this job because you're not. So I went to work for him in Jan or uh, June of '97, and then in August of 2005, about eight years later, when he had become the athletic director, his first hire was me as the golf coach at Oklahoma State. And I, you know, you don't question, uh, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth, as they say. But I did ask him. I said, Mike wow, I never expected this because you told me the first day you hired me that I would never be the coach, that whoever replaced you as the third golf coach in the history of Oklahoma State would be an alum. And he said, well, he said, all I know is when when you go to hiring somebody, uh, two things that are very important are work ethic and character. And you're not positive of what you're getting when you're hiring from outside. He said, I had watched every day for eight years, you get up and work hard. I, he, those two questions were already answered for me, and I knew you would do a good job. So uh, this wasn't a gift. You earned this over eight years. So, And just to clarify, Mike Holder uh, is the athletic director at Oklahoma State, and that's how he left the position, is to become the athletic director. So he would obviously be the person hiring his replacement. Absolutely. And... Don't think it was lost on me that this was his baby that he was handing over to me. Sure. Just as Labron Harris, the first coach at Oklahoma State, had handed the program over to him in 1973. 
like Mike Holder knew what he was getting. And what Mike Holder did was he made that program even better than Labor and left it, which was great. And I, that was my goal, that to, to leave it in better shape than, than Mike had, had uh, handed it off to me. But, and that's another thing that's part of this story. But I, I would say this, uh, I was very grateful and thankful that I would have the opportunity. You, you've heard the old term, your New York Yankees job, and like, this is the job. If you ever thought there was a job you wanted, well, this was it. I grew up in the shadows of, of Oklahoma State University. I grew up in a town 40 miles north of the campus. And where I told you my two heroes in golf were uh, ben Hogan and Jack Nicholas, and those were the two heroes that played the tour. But there were two other guys that played the PGA Tour that just happened to be Oklahoma State people as well. And one of them was Greer Jones, who had won the NCAA championship in 1968, and then was the rookie of the year on the PGA Tour in 1969, and went on to win three or four tournaments on tour. And then another was Mark Hayes, who grew up in Oklahoma City and was a first-team All-American a couple of times at Oklahoma State. Well, those were two guys that most people wouldn't think of. Those were golf heroes? Absolutely. Uh, Mark Hayes hit as many practice balls as Ben Hogan. And to me, that was, there was something almost, almost uh, spiritual about that. You know, just I could picture Mark Hayes' hands just being bloodied and the calluses. And Greer Jones was just a good old Wichita, Kansas boy who, uh, I, I, Mike Holder talks about a lot of uh, very few players in his career, whether it was his coaching career, his playing career, or even those that played for Labor and Harris before him, um, that he didn't talk with anybody with more reverence than he did Greer Jones. And Greer Jones, to me, was a hero because he was from our part of the country and he won an uh, NCAA championship. So those were two of my heroes. Mm -hmm. So it's like it wasn't lost on me, the history of the program at Oklahoma State. I knew all about it. I I could still recite the media guide if you wanted to because I had it in my head and I'd lived through most of it. But having said that, it's like I wasn't – it wasn't like I was unaware that there were high expectations. I knew what I was getting into. I went in eyes wide open. So for anybody to say, well, gosh, you had a great record at Oklahoma State. How, aren't you bitter that you got fired? Well, I don't know. Let's take, go back to that time when I did get fired. You know, we'd had a really tough year in 2012 and didn't make it to the national championship the first time in the history of the program. That's 65 years. Uh, I don't think of I don't think there's any sports uh, organization, team, uh, any, at, at any level that's ever made the finals 65 straight years. That's kind of unheard of. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I knew what had happened that year. Um, we'd had some players turn pro and all of that, but that happens all the time you know, nowadays. So um, we just weren't as good. And the next year we played fine and almost made match play at Nationals and should have won the conference championship but didn't. And I know so is that the end of six years as the head coach? It's the end of eight years. Eight years. And so uh, in the first, in your first six years, though, you had the number one ranked team at, in the country at the end of the season four times, mm-hmm. yeah. four out of six. Yeah. And two years later, you let go. Yeah. <laughs> well, that will tell you. Um, and, and if I can go back to the day Mike hired me, he said, now, before you say yes, remember that the expectations I'm going to have for this program are going to be unrealistic and they're probably going to be unfair. Mm-hmm. Are you, do you still want the job? And I said, absolutely. So 
The good news is I went in eyes wide open. I knew what I was getting into. And we did run into a couple of years that weren't as good. And certainly not by Oklahoma State standards were not not what you'd want. Uh, they weren't what I wanted. You know, it. Mike, I guess, had been thinking about this for a while. And then we mismatched play at Nationals. And then he, the day, the next day when we traveled back, I mean, it's almost as if he knew there was a radar. And, okay, the golf team has hit the city limits of still still water their back. So he called me literally 15 minutes after I had gotten in town with the guys from the airport and asked me if I could come talk to him. And so without kind of releasing the details of that sure, meeting, sure. it was a tough meeting because, you know, I know he didn't want to have the meeting and I know that I didn't want to be in the meeting. It was like this was he was bringing it to a head. He didn't fire me that day at all. Um, he wanted me to think about whether or not I thought I'd made some changes that were going to get the program turned in the other direction, and I did. Um, but anyway, it was 21 days later that he called me and said, uh, can we meet? And I said yes. And in the meantime, I had gone, recruited a couple tournaments, had golf camp, did all of that. And uh, he came into my office out at Karsten Creek and said, hey, uh, coach, this is really tough on me, but um, I'm going to have to make a change. And so that was a tough thing to hear because I, I felt like we had turned the ship, righted the ship and turned it around. I felt like we were going to be really good the next year. Uh, and we'd finished the season ranked 12th that year in the country. So it's not like we were completely in the tank, but it wasn't as good as it should have been. And so for about 15 seconds, I was just absolutely gutted. And uh, we said a few other things, but about 15 seconds later, it occurred to me that, wow, whew, I almost feel a little bit of relief. Like now I'm going to, I don't know where I'll end up, but wherever I end up, I'm going to probably be a better coach because I'm going to be coaching for all the right reasons, all the reasons I got in this to begin with. So if you back up to a little bit about those last two years and even the two or three years preceding that when we were the best team in the country, I don't think I was enjoying it. And I don't think I was inspiring anybody. I think I got up about 4.30 in the morning, like I still do today, and I'd just take a deep breath, and I would hold that breath all day long. Mm. And then about 10 o'clock at night when I went to bed is when I let the breath out and I went to sleep. Mm. So I wasn't living what you'd call a quality of life. My wife knew it, and she was trying to get to me, but she just couldn't. She did everything she could, and Pam just couldn't break through this shield that I'd put up, which is... I mean, she could see it, but I couldn't, I could only feel it. I couldn't really see it outside myself. So once Mike had told me that, about 15 seconds later, I, I kind of came to grips with, you know, okay, wherever I end up, it's going to be fine. I'm going to, I'm going to be a better coach. I don't know why or how, but I will be. And I shook Mike's hand and thanked him. And, uh, but I asked him if we could wait a couple of days to announce it so I could tell all my family members and, all the current players who were all at tournaments at the time. He said, fine. So we announced it on Friday afternoon after I'd, two days later after I had told everyone. And about 45 minutes later, once it was on the internet, I got a call from Jay Sewell at the University of Alabama. And uh, he invited me to come down to, to go to work with him. And that, that was a big moment for me because mm -hmm. I could stay in the game. Mm -hmm. So, But that's kind of how it all came about. Yeah, I think it... I was obviously not in the profession at the time, but I think it uh, um, it definitely turned a lot of heads. Um, 
and everybody knew your reputation. So it, something like that, I think, um, would uh, would only happen at a place like Oklahoma State with those expectations, with Mike Holder as your boss. So can you take us through um, that summer when you then go down to Alabama? Do you have any sort of um, animosity towards Oklahoma State or your boss there? Uh, considering the job you had done, um, or were you just ready to get started with something new? Well, can I tell a story about that? Yeah. So Please. first of all, I recruited the whole summer uh, for Jay. And my wife was busy selling the house in Stillwater, and she joined me in August. But but the, the summer was just, I was like a kid again. I was, you know, recruiting. I was wearing crimson, which I'd never wore anything crimson. If you're at Oklahoma State, crimson is 90 miles south in Norman. You don't do That's that. Not you're not good. So I, uh, but I was like a kid again. It was like a lot of fun at Oklahoma, and Alabama had a great team. So I knew that they would be returning some great players. And uh, there's a, a player on that team named Corey Witsit that I'd like to tell a story about here in a bit. But, but um, during that summer, I, my wife and I went up one evening to uh, Birmingham to visit a guy named Stephen Bunn. And Stephen was with College Golf Fellowship. And I know Stephen I met the first day I met anybody from College Golf Fellowship, Stephen Bunn and Brad Payne. They were at a college tournament when I was an assistant coach. And so Stephen's son Davis was in high school, and he was talking to me about uh, a flight program. He'd like to get into college, and he'd like to one day be a president of an airline. And I was going, wow, these are awfully big dreams. He, I said, do you know that they have a, a flight school at Oklahoma State? And we talked about it for about 30 minutes. I talked to him all about that. And then fast forward to about three years later, and I'm in Waco, Texas. And I'm the coach at, at, at Baylor, and I get a call. It's August 15th, and I get a call from Stephen Bunn. He said, Coach McGraw, are you sitting down? I said, yes, sir. What's going on, Stephen? He says, well, I'm pulling into Stillwater, Oklahoma right now. And I said, what are you doing up there? And he goes, well, Davis is going to be a freshman. I'm moving him into the dorm. He's going to be in the flight department at Oklahoma State, and he's going to get his flight degree. I said, oh, my gosh, that's fantastic. That's great. You never told me. He says, yeah, I know. We, I was just waiting to see it happen. He said, I'm wearing orange today. I couldn't, he couldn't believe that either. He's an Alabama guy. So he said, can I tell you a story? And I said, sure. And he said, do you remember when you and Pam came up and had dinner with us in Birmingham in that summer when you first got to Alabama? I said, yeah, I remember that. He said, do you remember the conversation you had with Davis about, about the flight school at, at Oklahoma State? And I said, yeah, I remember telling him all about it. And he goes, that very day, that night, he decided he was going to Oklahoma State. And I said, he didn't even know anything about it. He just knew what I told him. He said, yeah. He said, you had just been fired a month before, and all you could do was talk about how great Stillwater was. All you could do was talk about the people in Stillwater. All you could do was just say glaring, wonderful, glowing things about Stillwater. And you were a man that had just been fired by it. And he, my son was smart enough to realize if... If a place that he just left, and he didn't want to leave, but he got fired, 
is that good that he can talk that way about it? That's where I want to go to school and get my flight degree. And he said, you're the reason we're here today. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. So the point you asked the question, was I bitter? No, not at all. If you could trace back to the day Mike hired me, he told me he was never going to hire me. He did hire me. Mm -hmm. If I could trace back to my childhood, I was a huge Oklahoma State fan. And I always have been. When... Baylor's not in the field. I'm still an Oklahoma State fan. Baylor's not playing in the football stadium. I'm still uh, an Oklahoma State fan. It's like that's since the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things I did when on the first day of, of uh, practices at Baylor when you were a senior and you guys were in class that morning, I thought to myself, man, this is a great opportunity. I'm get to start a new new life at Baylor at a power five school with a great program and a conference I know and all of this. And I I started thinking about it and I probably wouldn't have this opportunity if it hadn't been for what Mike Holder did when he hired me as an assistant coach out of high school. It's like he didn't have to do that. So I just got out a a piece of Baylor stationery and wrote Mike a letter. And I included that letter in the book that, that better than I found it because I thought it was that important. And basically I was thanking Mike you know, Mike, I never properly thanked you when I left. I, I shook your hand, but I never thanked you for what you did for me. So uh, anyway, that and I put that in the book because I wanted people to understand. It was very important that everybody understood. I was not bitter. I was not angry. I was not even, I was, yeah, disappointed and mm-hmm. upset for a bit, but not bitter. Because anybody that does that much for your career, you owe that man a lot. So uh, a lot of people have a lot of things to say about Mike, but as far as I'm concerned, he always un- under-promised and over-delivered with everything he did for me. And um, so still a big OSU fan. It's just not when, when Baylor's playing. <laughs> I can't be. Uh, that's just awesome perspective. And um, I think that speaks to the coach you are today and who you've always been with that enthusiasm for coaching. And um, I think Coach Holder was right in the character he saw in you. But um, – so I was a senior at Baylor uh, going into my senior year when Coach Priest, that recruited me, uh, left to move to Tyler to become the athletic director for the independent school district over there. And we were going to hire a new coach. I had no idea who it was going to be. I just heard rumors that it was going to be somebody really good. Um, fast forward, you know, a few months to August and um, – I get to meet you for the first time, pull up to Twin Rivers Golf Club at the time where we had a facility and I saw a new truck in the parking lot. It had an Alabama golf sticker <laughs> yeah. on the back. I figured, okay, Coach McGraw is in the house. Um, why did you choose Baylor after that one year you were in Alabama? Um, and that enthusiasm that you had in coaching um, – how was that um were there any new additions to your enthusiasm or had that evolved any by the time you came to baylor well why i chose uh, baylor a lot of reasons one uh, i wouldn't have had that opportunity if i had just stayed in stillwater i I don't think i don't know if very many people would come calling if i was just a non-coaching person but jay sewell gave me a job a place to land a place to work for a year so i was still in the game so when all these openings happened, there were six Division I Power Five conference jobs open up in the same year. That never happens. Mm-hmm. And so 
Uh, Baylor happened to be one of them, and it's very late in the game, too. I'd already interviewed at several other places. But um, I, I like the fact that it was a Big 12 conference. I like the fact that it was in the state of Texas where there's a lot of really great players. I like the fact that it was at a faith-based Christian school, which it would just sound great to me. I like the fact that um, the coach that I was replace or would be replacing uh, had recommended my name to the athletic director. The athletic director didn't have any idea where to go with this because it was kind of late in the game. It was in almost mid-June. So I like the fact that Greg Priest, who I had a great amount of respect for, and <laughs> Greg and I have some pretty good history as being assistant coaches. He was at the University of Texas as an assistant. I was at Oklahoma State. And actually, that's a whole other podcast story. That's amazing. <laughs> but Greg had, had recommended to Ian McCall that he give me a call. And so, and then the final thing, and the, the, probably the thing that pushed me over the edge the most was that my wife is from Houston. So we would be within two and a half, three hours of most of her family. Mm-hmm. And it'd be nice to bring her to a, you know, back home, if you will. So all of those things together just made it like this was such a good opportunity. Plus, Greg had a very competitive program. You know, Baylor was a very well-respected program. Uh, they weren't making it to nationals very often. It was pretty rare, but they still had a very respectful, respected program. And so that was I wasn't going to have to rebuild from ground up. Greg already had a really good program. So all of those things together, it just made sense. And I was excited to get back in the game as a head coach. And as I said, if Jay Sewell hadn't given me that opportunity to go down there and be a, a coach. And by the way, just kind of – he infused me with energy and excitement mm-hmm. and enthusiasm and just love for what I was doing. There was just so many good things that happened that year. And, oh, by the way, we did win the national championship. <laughs> that too. So that was fun. But it it was just a, an amazing opportunity, and I knew it looking at it. Yeah. And so I, I, it was like a not a slam dunk but pretty close. Because if I can speak to that a little bit, as a player, you're a little bit blind to – who the coaches are at other schools and stuff, right? You just go to play and you try to do your best. You try to win the tournament. And um, sure, I knew who you were when you were at Oklahoma State, but um, you don't really pay that much attention uh, to other coaches that you weren't recruited by back in the recruiting process. And so what I thought was entering Baylor was a super experienced coach. Yes, that turned out to be correct. Um, A you know, pretty strong personality, but maybe a little bit, I don't know. Um, you have used the phrase recently saying that you're in the December of your coaching career, so to speak. <laughs> and so when you got to Baylor, you were probably in November or so. So I was kind of expecting Coach McGraw to come in. It's going to be a little my way or the highway, American style. Um, you're going to teach me a lot, but a very disciplined um strictly ran program but what happened was I wasn't right on that I was right that you were very experienced but we did all kinds of of stuff my senior year when you came in very first tournament none of us looked at leaderboards that was a thing we did which by the way we won by 16 um you had a an incredible enthusiasm that I have not seen from other coaches really, or th- there's nobody that is that is beating you on that enthusiasm. Um, there's some that come close to matching it, in my opinion. But you had an kind of a little bit of a childish like enthusiasm 
in a way. And so um, I guess I'm just trying to dig down on that a little bit. Can you elaborate a little bit on some of the ideas that you were excited to test out? Um, some of that kind of momentum that you had coming in with you and, and how that kind of unfolded in you? Right. That's a good question. I, um, I think it, it, it goes back to at some point that during that year at Alabama, I realized that the thing I'd been undervaluing as a coach, the quality that I had that I hadn't given a lot of you know, points for, if you will, I hadn't given myself a lot of credit for, was enthusiasm. When I was 27 years old and coaching as an assistant coach at Edmond Memorial High School, you ask any of those guys, and they're all in their late 40s and early 50s now. That's crazy that I've coached guys <laughs> that are that age now. But they, they, all they really knew was, he's a pretty good player. I could at least play with all of them at the time. Mm -hmm. But he just loved what he was doing. And I think that you undervalue how that needs to be your best quality. That's just me. I'm just giving my opinion. And people can say, oh, there's got to be something more important. I don't know how anything could be more important than loving what you're doing and showing it in your actions and showing it in your tone of voice and your facial expression and the way you go about your business. It's like how that will not fire up other people. And you just said it right there. I had all this enthusiasm. Well, yeah, I was getting ready to start fresh, brand new. I get to start over like a new career, like a renaissance, like a brand new beginning. It was like, and, and by the way, Greg had left me a good enough program that I didn't have to start over. There was good players already in place. There were a lot of good things Baylor had going for it. So I was fired up to be here. I couldn't have been more excited. And Ryan Blagg, I knew that guy was a good coach. Um, and your we, assistant, yeah, you I'm sorry. Over. Yeah. He was my assistant that I took over and I'd known Ryan, his high school coach was my college roommate mm -hmm. and they, his coach, Todd Selders, who's now at West Georgia, Western Georgia, uh, college used to be, he used to bring his high school team up and play against my high school team mm -hmm. in Edmond. And so I've known Ryan since he was young and I knew he was going to be really good and he was a good player as well. So it's like, it was all in place. To, to, but it wasn't about the success. It was just about I knew that if I'd bring in some enthusiasm, and part of it was like I think I had you guys caddy for each other yeah. in qualifying. So if you caddied, your partner was Jim Smith, whomever, and you caddied, you tried to get the best score out of him as you could that day because that was your score too. And the next day you'd flip and he'd caddy for you. We did stuff like that. Yeah. And they both count for our qualifying. Yeah, both you, would count. You experiment. We did a ton of new stuff, and I think you were experimenting too. And I was, of, yeah. And, and you were enjoying it. I was. I was using some things that off and on we'd used all those years at Oklahoma State, and even when I was in a, or a high school coach. But I, I decided, why not use a lot of these things and see what works best? Uh, you know, I, So I tried a lot of different things. Uh, the main thing I tried was, I remember one day in that fall, and I think we shot 18 under in qualifying that day. Mm -hmm. And see if you remember this day. I do. Okay. <laughs> and I had yet to even frown at you guys that fall. Everything was exciting and fun. And, and I was telling Ryan Black as we were watching, I mean, guys were shooting really low that day, but I had one kid, club left his hands, another kid slammed a club, another kid yelled a cuss word. Just from a distance, I was watching all this take place. And so the guys, one by one, are reporting their scores from that day. And I looked at it, and I said, hmm, well, if, if we, had, we were at a tournament, we'd have shot 18 under par for these four golfers. It's pretty good, but it's not good enough. 
and they were all looking at me like, who is this taskmaster? 18 under is not good enough? And I said, it has nothing to do with the score. And I spent the next 12 to 15 minutes telling you that that 18 under meant nothing if you didn't handle yourself with class. That 18 under meant nothing if you didn't control your emotions. That 18 under means nothing if you can't carry yourself as a, with dignity as a champion should carry himself. Because anybody can throw a fit. Anybody can throw a club. Anybody can do all those things. It takes a real champion to handle it the right way. And I was looking, just watching, just yesterday on the PGA Tour, Michael Thompson won a golf tournament. And it started off ugly that first several holes. But he handled himself like a champion. And he knew he was going to win yesterday, and he did. Now, that doesn't mean you always win. Mm-hmm. But... I knew that I didn't care about 18 under if, if we acted like jerks. And I said, you can look around at college golf and try to act like everybody else, or you can act like champions would act. And I, you know, I sort of learned that from Mike Holder. He taught me that. It was like he didn't allow any of that to take place. And I don't want kids to be void of emotion. I want, it needs to be some emotion, excitement. It matters to you, so you care. But you always handle yourself with dignity in class. And if you're going to represent Baylor or your family, or this golf team, or this university, it's not going to be by throwing clubs and cussing and yelling. And Ryan Black told me that of the six years he worked for me here at, at Baylor, that was the best speech I ever gave. And so I got a thumbs up from Ryan, and I know you remember that speech. Yeah, vividly. So um, kind of approaching uh, the end here of your, uh, or to date on your coaching career. So let's say, let's call it, early November that you in your coaching career that you got to Baylor since you like to use that mm-hmm. analogy Surely. a little bit mm-hmm. okay so you write a book better than I found it you're in November and December of you know your coaching career you're going to coach a long time still uh, you're not even close to the end but what is kind of the main thing that you would like to for November and December to be about in your career? Well, for one, I want to be the best I've ever been the last day I coach. Now, physically, yeah, I was telling you this morning, about, <laughs> man, this weather changed. That arthritis in my shoulder just felt terrible. So I know that physically I'm never going to be what I was at one time, but none of us are. And I think the best players in the world they get to a point where they're no longer the best and physically they aren't as good as they once were. But I want to be the best I've ever been as a 70-year-old coach 10 years from now. Why wouldn't I be? If, if I've still got my mind, if I've still got my love for what I'm doing, if there's still enthusiasm, if I still love what I'm doing, if I'm paying attention and if I'm surrounding myself with good people, I should be the best I've ever been. And the day they ask me to leave coaching, I'll go do something else, but I'm not going to give up on that quest to become the best I could ever, ever be, whatever that looks like. So the this November, December of my career, uh, writing that book was no accident. One, it was sort of therapeutic. It kind of brought to a close you know, that tough time in my life and how I made peace with it and moved on, but also a new beginning. So I wrote that book for that. I wrote that book for young coaches. I wrote that book for old coaches. I wrote that book to try to leave the profession a little bit better and to inspire somebody else to write a book even better. I still haven't seen anybody write one yet, but hopefully somebody will, you know, uh, I'd like to write another one someday, so we'll see if I ever do that. But the point is, is the last part of my career, I want it to be the best of my career. And that may not show up in victories. It might. 
may not, but what was my goal for the last part of this career? To leave it truly better than it was before I got here. So Baylor golf somehow or another has to be better. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if it's in facilities or if it's in people or results or all those together or whatever, but it needs to be better than it was when I, when I showed up. And if everybody kind of had that, that's the way I look at it. If everybody had that, if, if I could capture that, if we could bottle that, I know our world would be better. So if, if, if that's my goal, then it doesn't mean that I have to be coach of the year. It doesn't mean that we have to win the national championship. None of that is part of it. But it'd be great if that was a byproduct. But I just know I need to be better. And so uh, am I threatened that you might be a smarter coach than I am? No. You might be. I don't know. I, you're a young coach. You're just here brand new, and you and I are going to work together. I know we have the same goal to leave Baylor mm-hmm. better than it ever was before. You've chosen Baylor twice. Mm-hmm. So I look at that, and I think there must be a reason he's here. But it, if I can look at it the last 10 or so or however many years I get to coach, uh, I think they're going to be the best I've ever been. Mm-hmm. I don't know how. So going full circle then um, – the Better Than I Found It podcast is, that's the main idea, right? Is to bring it to more people. Um, the book is out there, but you're sitting on tons of stories. I mean, I get to listen to them every day, right? Uh, some, <laughs> yes, you do. A lot of times when I want to and sometimes when I don't want to. Um, but there's tons of stories, uh, you know, from your coaching that has great insight, but there's also you know, a lot of funny moments that happen. Um, and I think we want to use this podcast to, you know, get that out to people in a different way than um, to add to your book, your already existing book, and potentially one more in the future or whatnot. Uh, you give so much back to the coaching profession. Um, there's so many coaches from all sorts of levels that reach out all the time. So I think this will be good. Um, and I think we've come to kind of a point of the first episode Um where we'll see what the next one brings. Maybe it's a guest, maybe it's a story time or whatever is on the docket for Coach McGraw. Well, thank you for, uh, this was your idea. So I, I love it and I think it's great and I think it's going to be good for me to talk through some of these old stories and it should be fun. But I'm very, very thankful that I have the opportunity to do this and uh, very glad to be here. Yeah, thanks, Coach. Thanks, Coach.